0: Join us on a journey from
1: Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley
0: in Context. I can honestly say that my illness, you know, two liver transplants, multiple other surgeries, septic shock, where you're right to the brink of death. It stripped me of my money, my health, my strength, my control. I lost my job but not my faith, not my love. If you're in that circumstance where you're suffering as you listen, I know you feel abandoned, you feel isolated. You're hurting and it appears there's no end in sight. You have to know that you are loved, that God isn't out to
1: destroy you. He's coming for you. Well, on this bonus episode, we have typically gone to subject matter experts on a particular book or topic of the big book cover-to-cover series. But because Job, number one, is one of my favorite books, number two, it is the common condition of all people. They are going to, you are going to, I will go through things in life that are inexplicable, that seem unjust, that seem unfair... And as Christians, we need to learn how to respond to these things, how to learn from them, how to grow through them. And not merely what do I learn so that I can get through it, but uh, how is my life different because of suffering, because of unanswered questions, because of unjust, unjust suffering. So, to that end, I wanted to call my great brother and friend, Jim Traficant. Uh, Jim lives in the Northern Virginia area. And as I was combing through my bad memory, Jim, I think we met in 92, but I don't think we really started spending time until 1993. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. But anyway, you invited me to go to lunch. And so uh, we went to lunch, and uh, we pulled back in the church parking lot. I think we talked for like two and a half hours in that church parking lot, and I heard a lot about your story, your health, your life. Uh, Before we jump into some of the the nitty-gritty of your story, Uh, Give folks a little bit about your background. You grew up in Pennsylvania? I grew up in Ohio. I knew that. But I
0: married Gwen from Pennsylvania. I I had a 50-50 chance. (laughs) That's right. You were close. You were in the neighborhood. Uh, Yeah, so I grew up in Ohio, small town, four sisters. Dad was a principal and uh, went to Geneva College and came to Christ there and then moved to the Northern Virginia area. To get my first job we swore we'd only be here for a couple of years and now it's been 30 plus wow
1: so you and gwen got married what year
0: right out of school 1984 i definitely married up <laughs> yeah. you did i definitely
1: did and anyone who sees and meets gwen they know it immediately yeah no question and you have two great kids uh ashley and jeremy and yes. uh you're empty nesters now uh kind of yeah we are we'll get to part of that story yeah and uh And you've been in the aerospace defense industry, the healthcare industry, electrical engineering background, and uh, your current day job is uh, still in the technology fields?
0: Yeah, I lead uh, federal health for a company called Accenture. And, yeah, my background is in technology, and I've worked in a variety of industries, and uh, it's all been part of his story, so it's been really fun.
1: If memory serves, and correct me, please, uh, at that first lunch, you told me about a disease called PRC. Uh, that you had been struggling with some health issues and it took quite a while to diagnose. If memory serves, Walter Payton passed away the day you learned of your disease? Actually, I was really
0: struggling with my health and it took over a year to get to a diagnosis. I was laying in a hospital bed and uh, watching Monday Night Football and they came on and said that Walter Payton died of this rare liver disease called primary sclerosing cholangitis, PSC. And I was laying in the hospital bed with the same thing. And uh, it's a very rare disease. Uh, it's an autoimmune disease. It's when your immune system begins to attack things that are healthy, including your liver. And it leads to eventually a liver transplant if you're fortunate enough to get one.
1: Well, you made that sound pretty easy. Um, that, that was a really long diagnostic process. And you were in and out of the hospital a lot. And uh, yes. it was debilitating. And as you and I have lots of friends that struggle with health, that in between diagnostics and treatment is a very complicated road for some people. And you lived there a long time. You dealt with this more than a year, right? I mean, it had been several years on and off.
0: Oh yeah, in fact, I was sick for about 17 years and it progressed over time and there were a number of surgeries and complications. And you know, it's kind of interesting, Michael, you're talking about backgrounds. You know, I I played two sports in college. You know, Gwen and I had just gotten married, uh, land my first job here in the DC area. And I'm working in the space program, and everything just seemed like we're on this upward trajectory. And then it happened, uh, and it, what it led to was, you know, two liver transplants, uh, septic shock in between, where I uh, went right to the brink of death in each of those instances, and multiple other surgeries. Um, in the course of all of that, especially with septic shock, I, I lost my ability to stand. I was in the hospital for such a long time. I, I lost my ability to walk. I was in a wheelchair for months. In the hospital for months. you know had to learn to walk again so this kind of experience i would say um you know it was suffering in a over a long period of time and you know everybody has heart and it comes in different degrees but i also experienced god's grace you know in ways i never could have imagined Um, so i'd have to say that through the suffering i'd experienced the grace of god in ways that i could not have known otherwise and it's not been the road i imagined when i came to christ in college but we would say it's not one I would trade for the world. It's it's literally been the grace of God up close.
1: Now you and I have talked about this over the years countless times, but l- let's draw some parallels with Job. First of all, when tragedy befalls Job, initially people respond, you know, seemingly good. His friends come around him; they sit with him for seven days. They don't they don't make comment, uh, and there's a there's a period of time there where there's just not much to say when suffering strikes. What was your experience like both internally with your own spiritual walk and then uh, people that came alongside you?
0: I would characterize it in a couple of ways. First, I would describe the process. You know, I have this word picture in my mind I call the corridor of death. And it looks something like this. It's it's when you have you know tremendous event going on, like in my case with a severe liver disease or a crisis like septic shock, where you go right to the brink of death. When you have a fixed end date, like in the case of a liver transplant, you really quickly prioritize. So you walk this corridor of death and the first thing you jettison are the things you tend to spend the most of your time with. Your stuff and your work, they're the first to go. You walk a little further, you say goodbye to your friends. You walk a little further still and you say goodbye to your extended family a little further goodbye to your parents a little further still goodbye to your children and then goodbye to gwen and then you stand alone at the edge of life uh, with the one who made you And, and i can tell you from being there it's an awesome place to be if you know christ and i would say having walked that path a couple of times it's truly amazing. The hard part is walking back when you get everything back and you come back into the day-to-day. So I would say, you know, and, and if I jump up to a macro picture, I would say the big challenge is coming back after a crisis like that. With people that come around you, you really do need people to come around you. You need to be encouraged. Just people that care. You know, Job's friends start out with, you know, as you described, they come from a distance to be with him And they just sit there with them and and grieve and try to comfort and encourage. The problem is when they started talking. And I would say this is true. And when you're sick, you come to appreciate that at times you actually have to help other people deal with the fact that you're sick and maybe even dying because they don't know what to say or how to engage. And it's kind of a surprise when you're in that circumstance. But I would bet that anyone that's listening that's been in any kind of difficult condition like that would immediately identify. And you also have to understand that people, even though well-intentioned, you know, may from time to time say you know things that just don't come out right and make it harder, and that was certainly true in the case of Job's friends.
1: Do you remember any specific things where people said something that were like, oh, I would just like to give him a dope slap right now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can tell you one, this is kind of funny. One time, I, I guess I was in a hospital, and um, somebody came up to Ashley, our daughter, who was like nine at the time, and prayed with her for my health, which is like a really dear thing to do. And then they went on to say, and they were praying that we wouldn't lose our house because of the medical expenses and all of these other things, which is a lot to put on a nine-year-old, you know, so that sometimes you're, you're like, well, you know, I understand your point, but it's probably, you probably could have done a little better there.
1: Well, at least that one was semi-humorous, yeah. yeah. So we're all attracted and there's lots of scholarly interpretation on Job's wife. But she says to him at a low point, undoubtedly, curse God and die. I think that statement can be taken too far, but there is some substantial truth there at this point. I mean, when all the props are taken away, when the doctors don't know what to do, you in particular were waiting for a liver for a long time. Once once they got to that diagnostic, then you're on this insufferable in-between of waiting for a donor, and that's a whole story we can get into. Was there any curse God and die at some point, and not from Gwen, but just in a generic sense that, wow, Lord, this is just time to go. This isn't worth it. I think
0: when I got to the point, uh, when I had septic shock in between the transplants, Michael, there was a point where when Gwen got to the hospital, the doctors said, we don't know if he's going to live through the night. And if he does, we'll come up with a plan. And it was unbelievably hard. And the burden of the caregiving fell to Gwen, but we were at a point multiple times where we just didn't know if I was going to live. So I would say living at the precipice, extremely hard and even more difficult for the caregiver. And what I mean by that is, let's just look at Job and his wife for a second. They just came through a circumstance where, you know, in the beginning of the book, they just, someone comes bringing him the news and then all of his children die in, a, in an instant. And if you lost a child, and we've been tested, you know, we haven't lost a child, but we've gone to the brink of death with both Ashley and Jeremy, as you know. The thought of that is so overwhelming, to lose all of them at once. And then the person you would turn to for comfort, and Job's wife, she'd want to go to her husband, and the Bible describes him as scraping his skin. And, you know, with liver disease, your skin becomes so itchy, it's almost unbearable. And so there was even a way that I could identify with that. But the person she would turn to for help, or comfort is so insular and turned inward given his own condition, he, he's of no help to her. Who wouldn't lash out in a moment like that? And you'd hate to be defined, have your life defined. In fact, you go into uh, Job chapter three and he curses the day he was born. You know, In his own mind, he's going through, this is just too much. Why did, I, why did you even allow me to live if this was gonna be my outcome? I would say I had the opposite experience in that you and a series of other people and families came alongside of us. And I remember coming to the elders and asking for prayer. And I remember specifically asking, of course I wanted to be well, but help me to be thankful more than anything else. And I think that, you know, what we see it again in the big picture with Job is he goes from this lamenting and anguish and tremendous suffering to questioning God and where were you? And eventually when God responds, Job comes back to worship. And I think in the midst of suffering, could it be that God's reaching out for us? And eventually that's
1: where we all need to land. I have an unpopular thesis that we do not grow apart from suffering.
0: You know, it'll seem self-serving, but you probably don't remember this, but one time we were talking, I was driving home from work, and I'm on the other side of all this, finally, you know, 20 years in, and you said, man, you, you have to be so... Relieve that you're on the other side and i remember my answer i can even tell you where i was sitting when it just occurred to me i said you know i don't miss being sick i don't miss the suffering and the surgeries and the pain and all of the rest but the intimacy that you have with christ when everything else is stripped away is undescribable it's so rich And I had probably some of the closest moments I've known in my walk with Christ have been the hardest moments I've experienced in the journey of suffering that, you know, we've gone through. And I don't want to overstate suffering because there's many people that have gone through things much harder than we have. But in my own journey, I would say, I'd have to agree with you, Michael. And I think A.W. Tozer says something about that, you know, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I don't completely understand that. But somehow, even with the disciples, with, you know, the Apostle Paul, you know, this anguish that Jesus experiences before he goes to the cross, you know, but prays for the cup to be taken, but not my will, but yours. There's, there's a closeness when everything else is stripped away that the power and the grace and the blessing of Christ come pouring through in ways that I think are not possible otherwise.
1: Okay, you say that, and I I know you and Gwen very well, but Jim, I would say a good percentage of people do not feel close to Christ in suffering. They do not feel when the props are all taken away, only Christ is there. They feel bitter. They're hurt. They feel lonely. They feel misunderstood. No question. They feel judged, and it often can manifest itself I mean, depression would be great, but it manifests itself in anger towards the healthcare community, anger towards their spouse, their children, their workers, their friends. You know, it's almost like a bad analogy, but like a wounded animal, you can't approach them because they're so hurt.
0: Yeah. And I I think it even happens with Job, Michael. I mean, when you go, when we talk about his wife's response, Job snaps right back at her. And I think, you know, this is not to say that we've done this perfectly by any means. I mean, in fact... One of the things that we learned coming out of a traumatic event, you know, I'll give you an example. In the first transplant, it was about six months before we knew I was going to live. There was a lot of complications uh, in and out of the hospital. At one point, for example, they said, we're gonna give you a shot. We don't know if it'll cure you or kill you. We'll know in 20 minutes. And so the pressure of that, the decisions you have to make in the moment, I mean, they're so weighty, they're so overwhelming. And even the medications themselves are so overwhelming and the sense of loss and fear um, that are just natural when you're in that circumstance. You go through all of that, I finally get home. We make it home. And Gwen and I, we would find, we would end up arguing about little things, like things that really didn't matter. And finally, after this went on for a while between the two of us, I I asked, I said, you know, it seems amazing that we would fight so hard to live. And then we come back and we try to come back to life and we can't do it. Mm. And It was like there was a wall, Michael. Um, No one tells you it's coming, but you can't get over it. You can't get around it. There's no way for this wall to go away until you acknowledge it, until you say, I need to heal. And there's an emotional healing that has to come in addition to whatever you've gone through physically. And once we were able to address it, it was like it fell over, we could walk past it. But it's happened in every instance. It happened in both my transplant, septic shock, and I, I think it's a very common thing. I think this is where couples turn on each other when there's a loss or there's, you know, in, intense hardship. And again, I would say when our tendency is to turn against each other, we need to turn to Christ. And I can hear you telling Gwen and I, you just need to take the next step. Just do the next thing. And you, you can't really look at every, It's too overwhelming. Just do the next thing. And God will give you the strength and the faith for the step that's after that. And I would say to people that are listening, if you can do that basic thing, take the next step in faith, trust him for the one after that, you have a chance of getting through this in a way where you could actually be used in the midst of it. And it won't be destructive. It could actually turn to something of benefit.
1: One of Job's comments that I I love, I kind of hate to admit I love it so much, is when he pronounces to his friends, sorry comforters are you all. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He called him on it, didn't he? Yeah. I give him a little credit. You're my friends with friends like you. You you already intimated that you know the community came around you pretty well, but just your thoughts on the idea and, and again you and I have been with other people that have suffered and they've had some sorry comforters. Yeah. What's your thoughts on how to encourage them?
0: Yeah, I would say a couple of things. This idea of when you're in the midst, sometimes people come in and their own anxiety with your condition, they play out in front of you. And again, they're there to help. These guys travel to come and encourage. And then they start giving, you know, it just goes south from there. Uh, And I, I think Job is right. And I think that when you're in that circumstance, being able to speak to the people around you honestly about what you need and what you don't need. You know, you need help. You need pulled out of the circumstance. You don't need anybody piling on unintentionally, even with good intentions. And you have to protect, you know, your own state of mind and health and even for your family. But I think this happens more often than not. And you know, this gets to bedside manner sometimes with clinical staff and then you wanna react when you know, they're dealing at the precipice of life and death for a, you know, that's their job every day. And everybody's lamenting. And so how can you pivot and help? And Michael, I would say, you know, you and I know a lot of folks that have been, you know, in a degree of suffering even greater than what we've gone through and have done remarkably well because they've been able to make this pivot towards Christ, and see it as an opportunity to serve, and have the mindset, this is not happening to me, maybe it's happening for me, and when you could see that shift occur, then it's like the whole world opens up in the midst of all this.
1: And one of the things that I had to learn was that pain and suffering is not a competition or a comparison. Yes, everybody has hard. Right, and when you... You know, say oh, I never went through what Jim went through, what Ashley went through, or they look at me and they go, you know, I, I don't know how you live with chronic pain. I'll say it's not a competition or a comparison. <laughs> your pain yeah. is your pain, yeah. and and addressing it is 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 your response in broad strokes for people who suffer. Uh, what are some like high level lessons that you've learned and continue to relearn?
0: One of them, I would say, is he is for us. You know, things start to turn and. When you're weak physically, you're weak emotionally, you're weak spiritually. I remember when people come in and would say they were going to be praying for me. You're just like, I hope you can't because I don't even have the energy or the wherewithal to pray for myself. And you just rely on it. But it takes me to a place where I would say he is for us. And you see this at the end of Job for sure. But, you know, the passage in Romans, if God is for us, you know, who could be against it? And, and, Michael, if it's okay, I want to share a little bit about how you were involved with my suffering. I mean, I was in need of a liver transplant and due to the nature of my disease, in my case, I had to find a living donor. And you only have one liver, so this is not like you can go across the street and borrow something, right? This is serious, hard. Uh, At the time, I remember you you were following my appointments at Hopkins and you called me and said, hey, I just heard what happened. You know, you were gonna need a living donor. I'm gonna be your donor and you never ask, so you can't say no. I know you're going to want to tell me to stop talking about this. I know it's your show, but I really want to share this, if you don't mind, and I won't go on too long.
1: Okay, I'll let you share let, let me just inject here. For folks who don't understand a living liver donor, so unlike any other organ in the body, the liver regenerates. So a person can donate a lobe, a portion of their liver, and in perfect cases, at least one bile duct, correct, Yeah. Uh, to the recipient, which would be you in this case, so a living liver donor it's it's a big surgery it's a big operation um and, and so just for people listening going what's he talking about a living donor so a, <laughs> a, a liver can be sectioned and part of that liver then grafted in your old liver the diseased liver removed and then you are the recipient of a living liver donor so okay you, you can go on Okay thanks <laughs> I just what had is- a, just for clarification <laughs> Yeah, no, that's good to get that clinical in there.
0: But this is like a 12 to 14 hour surgery. This is a big deal. I mean, the donor has to go first. They operate, you know, for two and a half hours on them before, you know, the recipient even goes into surgery. And I'll I'll never forget, you know, you calling me at that point. And I was pushing back and like, what about Cindy? And, you know, you know, you had four, you just adopted. And you said, if God has a different plan, we're just going to start down a path. If he has a different plan, he'll show us. And those words echo to my mind this day. And then you were disqualified. Your liver wasn't a structural match for mine. The puzzle pieces didn't work for the hospital. But when I look back, Michael, this is what I would say is to encourage folks that are in the midst of their suffering now and they can't see their way out of it. But the pieces were part of his perfect plan. The The puzzle did work for our Lord. You went from the operating room to the waiting room. And I'll never forget, I had extended family in town, and they would not typically go to church or be inclined. And I remember Gwen hollering down and she said, your dad called. He said, we're coming tomorrow and we're going to church because he wants to meet the guy who not just gets up on Sunday and, and talks about how he should live, but actually would put his life on the line for his son. And I'll never forget when you met my dad. And then, as you know, my neighbor ends up being my donor. And there's less than 70 of these done in the country at the time. This is a high risk, not much known about it. And then not only did he save my life, but he came to Christ in the process. Michael, this is a script that you couldn't write. And then you became his pastor and the pastor to his family. I mean, it's an amazing story. And, and one other thing I'll never forget, when we were post-surgery, I mean, we were real. it was rough. And uh, we didn't know if we were going to make it. I mean, just being candid. And you were reading the scripture to us. I can even remember you were reading Revelation 4 and 5, an amazing passage. with this coronation of Jesus and the Father lavishes his glory on this. It's a magnificent passage. And then you pivoted to read this devotional by the Senate chaplain. It said, God is on our side, he's by our side, and he's our source of strength inside. If God is for us, who could be against? And I remember looking at Frank, and we, like, locked eyes, and we said, we're going to make it out of here. (laughs) <laughs> and it was, and I, I just remember, Michael, we were thinking, God is for us. And I would say, you know, for those of us, for people that are suffering, you just have to grasp that concept. He's really for us. And I think the proof of that, Michael, plays out with Job. And you see, it's the oldest book in the Bible. And I love that it. it's a man whom God describes as his choice servant. And then it says, despite his righteous living, that's how he's described, he recognizes that's not enough. He can't be good enough to be right with God. And he needs a savior, a redeemer. And in the midst of all this, he declares, and it's in Job 19, as for me, I know that my redeemer lives. I think this is one of the great messages to encourage us. And and I think it's one of the oldest books because suffering is universal. And we can only be right with him if we trust him. And there's no other way to earn the merit. You know, he gets the credit. I mean, the way he's described is my choice servant, and yet he still needed the redeemer. And, Michael, I can honestly say that my illness, you know, two liver transplants, multiple other surgeries, septic shock, we you're right to the brink of death, they've stripped me of my money, my health, my strength, my control. I lost my job, but not my faith, not my love. And thanks to God's grace and my wife, Gwen, our family is stronger still as a result. And only in Christ is this possible. Only the Christian can suffer with purpose. And the Lord has opened up more opportunities to serve him and others through suffering than I ever could have imagined otherwise.
1: When Paul said he'd been rich and poor, I said, well, I'd like to try the rich part. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, let's go for it. Yeah. I'd let's like start there and talk part. about it. Yeah. I don't want to try the suffering part, but you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> we don't get that choice. But again, uh, not to sound morbid, I just don't think most of us, anyone really can grow in uh, health, wealth, and prosperity. I think I don't need it, Michael. You grow when you struggle. You grow when the props are taken away. You grow when there's nowhere to turn but God. Well, let me go here because people often ask me this question, and I'd love to get your take on it. Is Do you ever ask why?
0: I didn't, um, and I just want to say something for um, those that are listening and wouldn't know the story. Just so you don't think, well, great, you come out and you can say all this because it turned out well for you. The scenario that Michael described about a living donor liver transplant, not only did it happen to me, and then I had a second transplant, but it happened to our kids. It went past me to Ashley. And Gwen wanted to be Ashley's donor in the worst way. In fact, and it was disqualified because it was, again, it wasn't a structural match, which is one of the conditions to be the donor. And so I remember her going back in to talk to the surgeon, like, you don't understand. You have to take me or my son is going to step up. And then, Michael, as you know, Jeremy ended up being Ashley's donor. And we almost lost both of them. And I really struggled. And so when you talk about asking why, when it was me, I didn't. I had some semblance of control. It was was the circumstances were all, you know, around me, and I could kind of manage it. When it went to Ashley and Jeremy, I I didn't have any control. In fact, I had to admit to my family, I'm really struggling with with Ashley's suffering. And then what I knew Jeremy was going to have to go through to be her donor. You know, there was no... Gap between when I was sick and Ashley got sick of it. It literally was the week I was coming off the medications, Ashley went on them. And it's so rare that it's a parent child relationship, but in our case, we fit the profile. But uh, Ashley's laying totally emaciated. Um, Gwen's caring for her. We're we're all, you know, anxious about what's going to happen. And she says to me, Dad, you need to read this book, Your God is Too Safe. I'm like, okay, Ashley, I'll read it. You know, what are you going to (laughs) say? so i get into the book Uh,
1: excuse me yeah Yeah, like yeah you know okay
0: (laughs) so i'm reading it and the first half of the book it's a metaphor for the christian life there's two countries in africa that have like 300 yards between the borders you're going from a place to a place and everybody tends to hover in between and it's a metaphor for this isn't our home we're going to a place and yet we struggle and of course that diagnosis fit me and then you get to the second half of the book and it's how do you get out of borderland and he comes to the passage out of isaiah 40 They that wait on the Lord, he will renew your strength. You'll mount up with wings like eagles. You'll run and not grow weary. You'll walk and not faint. And the author, a pastor, he says, well, anytime you see a progression in the Old Testament, it's always from the lesser to the greater. I'm like, wait a second. Soar like an eagle, run and not grow weary? Unless the greatest thing that God asks of us is to trust him, is to take the next step. And Michael, that's the advice that you've been giving. And I would say to those that are in the midst of your grief, and it's not fair, and you're exhausted, and and you're worn out. Look, God understands. He doesn't blame Job when Job is, you know, he doesn't crush him when he's asking questions. He brings him to a place, though, where he turns his suffering to worship. What I want to get here is this is not an equation where if I trust Christ, it's all going to work out or it's all going to go my way. It's just not how it works. Commitment to Christ is unconditional, and he suffered on our behalf. He's described as the suffering servant and our Savior, and it's there that you could find reprieve for your soul, for your emotions, for your suffering, and only there.
1: It's one thing for you and Gwen to go through this. It's one thing for an individual to go through chemo or whatever it might be, but your first born daughter... I mean, this, you know, you've told the story to some measure, but this is this is not right.
0: No, was it wasn't, Michael. I didn't do well, honestly. And my only point for sharing that is, you know, at the end of the book of Job, it talks about how the Lord restores his fortune, essentially. He gets, you know, twice the cattle and the property and seven more children. But it doesn't mean he wasn't grieving the loss from the first time. And I don't want anyone to come back with, a takeaway out of this time and this conversation thinking, oh, all I have to do is commit to Christ and in the end I'm gonna get all this other stuff or it's all gonna work out. That it's not an equation. It's a total commitment, a total surrender. Jesus went to the cross on our behalf. He gave everything for us and he expects all of us back. And it's unconditional. His commitment to us and then ours and we follow. It just can't be conditional. And so we can't control our circumstances. The only choice we have is what do we do? How are we going to respond? And as I said, when it was me. I, I felt like, you know, I managed it reasonably well. It was our kids. I really struggled. But what I found was it wasn't about me. It was about him. And I came to appreciate Gwen in ways I couldn't have. I went from the operating room to the waiting room where she had been all along for 30 years. And I knew that I needed to trust him. I needed to let go and trust that God had a plan for our kids, just like he had for me and for Frank and for you and and then we've seen God work you know in their lives in ways that again to your point about suffering somehow brings us closer to Christ that we've seen that with both Ashley and Jeremy as well
1: now let's change gears just a bit whether it's the healthcare professional or people that suffer without hope what do you say to them
0: i would say i can understand you're being angry i can understand you know, we talk about burnout in medicine. You see this all the time, Michael, and I work in the field. So clinician burnout is just rampant. And part of it is is just the exhaustion of being emotionally invested and you're caring for people. And particularly when you're in these crises, it's never ending. I would say that God does not get, he invites us to ask the questions. I mean, if you keep going past Job, you run into Psalms and they are replete with asking questions where the circumstances aren't right, they they seem to be unfair. And we tend to think, you know, there's some kind of equation where if we live right, then good things should happen. I remember being asked one time by a close family member, he said, it's not right. You know, you have faith and you're really sick and suffering and I don't have as much and I'm fine and it's not right. It's not fair. And I remember answering, but what if I have everything I could ever need already? And that would be the grace that comes through knowing Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, purpose for this life, and the promise of eternal life. Then everything else, I mean, Jesus calls us to a great adventure, not comfort. And it could take various forms, and it doesn't mean you have to suffer in order to serve him. But Michael, you know some of these folks, like when you talk about Johnny Erickson Tata, I mean, there's a person that for 50 plus years in a wheelchair, you're like, how could that be fair? And I saw her at the Kennedy Center last week at a concert, and she was sharing her story in the midst of this concert. And she said, yeah, 50 years in a wheelchair is extremely hard, but I'd rather be in this chair knowing Jesus than walking around without him. It's people like Barbara Brand, you know, a close friend of ours who's got MS. And in the midst of her suffering, I mean, she goes for months where she's just bedridden and yet has more impact for Christ than many pastors over the course of their career. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's caregivers like Gwen who help carry loved ones indefinitely and share in their suffering, including isolation, pain, hurt, the medical bills, doctors. Michael, there's 30 million people in the United States that are caring for a loved one that is ill or suffering. This is a message that needs to get out. I think it's why God gets it to it right out of the chute, the oldest book in the Bible. And when you get to like places like Luke 5, where you remember there's a passage where friends are bringing a paralyzed one of their friends and trying to get him in front of Jesus in hopes that they, he would be healed. And they can't get him. And so they open the roof up and lower him in on the ropes. And Jesus looks up and he says, and the Bible says, seeing their faith, the friends that lowered him in front. He says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I know that that's not that wasn't the immediate thought when these guys brought him forward. And then the Pharisees and others that were questioning Jesus' intent, and Jesus says, But that you may know the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, pick up your pallet and walk. And he tells them. But part of the miracle were the caregivers and how they participated. And Michael, you live with chronic pain. I mean, you know what this is like. I, I think you know, many people don't know the degree to which you have this chronic pain that just doesn't go away. And in the midst of all of that, you're faithful in serving and serving and with humility, proclaiming Christ. These are all examples where God allows a choice servant to suffer, not because he doesn't love them. It's just the opposite. It's because he does love you and he can trust you with his glory, with his gospel, with his people. And for those that don't know Christ and are on your own journey, I understand that you're weary, you're angry, you're isolated. You feel like it is unjust. This is what I love about the way God describes himself. He's our father. This idea of just being, if I live well, I deserve good things, um, and somehow I can earn favor with God. That's, you know, every major system of thought kind of adheres to that tenet. And Jesus and Christianity totally inverted. It's grace in the gospel that Jesus was the one who suffered on our behalf, like to an extreme that we can't even imagine, not just physically, but He took our sin and judgment. And He turns around and offers us forgiveness and eternal life. It's a gift, and we can't earn it. And I would ask, You know, God describes himself as for the widow, for the orphan, for the poor, for the migrant. He comes for the sinner and he's here to help comfort those who suffer. You know, Jesus is described as the suffering servant and our savior. It's not like he didn't forget us, he went to the cross for us. And in the end, like Job though, you have to decide, are you going to continually question? Are you gonna come to a place where you acknowledge him as God? And as Job was able to declare, I know that my redeemer lives.
1: When you look back on, Two liver transplants in and out of hospital, months in and out of Hopkins. Ashley's story, and we'll get to that at some future broadcast, but Ashley having her own insufferably long waiting period before Jeremy was able to donate and then having to go through another transplant herself. Yeah. I mean, this is years. This is chronic. This is disabling. And it's got to hang a little bit in the back of your mind. Uh, What if it recurs?
0: Yeah, that's fair, Michael. It doesn't leave. But I would say, I think the blessing of a second chance, you know, a third chance. The gospel is about starting over. It's about getting another chance. It's about, It's not a... And one of the, one of the things I want to say is sometimes people get... You get to the point where you feel like, my life is in such a condition. I'm so angry. I'm so hurt. If there was a God, I don't want anything to do with him, given where I'm at. and And it's totally understandable. I mean, those same sentiments are expressed all throughout the Bible. And he just doesn't, he won't turn on you. He's coming for you. And I would say, despite, you know, Michael, yes, something could happen tomorrow. Um, And we're not promised tomorrow, but we have today. And so the choice we have is how are we going to serve him in the midst of it? We could spend all our time asking why, but we're not going to get an answer that satisfies. And when Job went to that point. God begins to ask him, well, where were you? And he talks about the creation, all the majestic things that he had done to draw us to himself. And then Job ends up in a place of worship. And we have to, I would encourage, you know, if you're in that circumstance where you're suffering as you listen, I know you feel abandoned. You feel isolated. You're hurting and it appears there's no end in sight. You have to know that you are loved, that God isn't out to destroy you. He's coming for you. And sometimes we imagine how it ought to be, and then we find God's plan is so much greater. Michael, it's like you said, if he has a plan, he'll show us. Michael, we could never have imagined his plan. His purpose for us is so far beyond our circumstances, beyond our pain. And it's often through our pain that we can see the end of us and the beginning of him. You know, the famous verse in John three sixteen: For God so loved us that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever would trust in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Maybe all you're enduring isn't happening to you, it's happening for you. Turn your pain into purpose and joy. Give your life to Christ. The Bible says there's rejoicing in heaven when even one comes to Christ. I beg you as one who has suffered, you be that one today who turns to him.
1: I return again and again to Hebrews 4.14 where he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And I remember coming out of one of my back surgeries and how that passage was sort of the equalizer that got me back on my feet, if you will, spiritually, because we have this picture of God being distant or unaware or uncaring. And the author of Hebrews says, no, we've got a high priest. He's done exactly. He's been through what you have been and much more. And he's passed through the heavens. And so we can hold fast to that confession. And then he goes on to say, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Most of us have seen the Wizard of Oz, and we remember the closing scene when the lion is so terrified to go down and see the great and powerful Oz, and it's just a little man behind a prop. But we have confidence to go to the real throne of grace, no fear, no terror, and the point is to find, to receive mercy and find grace. There's no other place than at the throne of grace to find mercy and grace, and you've encourage folks to, if they don't know Christ, that they would not turn or hide or run or become angry or sullen or depressed, but they draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We have a high priest who gets it. He understands your weaknesses. He understands your sin. He understands your pain, your loss, your fear, and he cares. And that's why he died. That's why he came back from the dead, was to save us, not just from temporal suffering and and hurt and loss and pain, but from our eternal sin condition, so that we live forever with him in a heaven that we cannot begin to understand. Jim, you continue to live by faith. You use the lot that God gave you as a megaphone to share Christ uh, in a unique way. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on the broadcast because I don't know many like you who live with, you know, such an incredible story of illness and suffering and disability and, and gains and losses and yet tenaciously hold fast to Christ, uh, even when it's hard. And, uh, and then when it gets easier, tenaciously share your story with others so that they don't have to suffer without meaning, that they don't languish or become afraid, but there's hope for them far, far beyond what they may experience in the here and now. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. Would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates.